So we are in Zechariah, and last week we finished chapter 5. That was a series of visions culminating in the vision of the woman in the basket with the lead cover. And as I said last time, I think what we're talking about is evil fire in a basket with a lead cover. And you're talking about nuclear weapon going into the land of Shinar. And of course, the land of Shinar is the plain of Babylon, which is where Iran and Iraq are. So tonight we're going to get on to chapter 6. And chapter 6 is sort of a bookend, if you will. You remember we started off in chapter 1, where you had the four horses? Well, now we're going to have four chariots. And one of the commentaries I read is that this then is a bookend, because you remember the vision of the four horsemen in chapter 1 is they went throughout the earth, and what they discovered was that the nations were at peace, and that God was not pleased with the way that the nations had treated Israel. And as I said back in chapter 1, it shows up in a lot of the prophets where God whistles up a Gentile nation to chasten Israel, and the Gentile nation does it with far more enthusiasm than God had anticipated. So he winds up working against the Gentile nations for payback, if you will, for the damage that they did beyond what he had envisioned. So that was back in chapter 1, where you had the four horses. Now, here, instead of four horses, we're going to have four chariots. And we need to stop and think about horses and chariots for a minute. What does Yeshua come riding into Jerusalem on? A donkey. So the idea is a horse is an instrument of war, or a military instrument, if you will. I think I've told everybody this story. I understand a mule cannot be used as a war horse. They won't do it. They look at what's going on here and say, I don't want any part of that, and they won't charge, whereas a horse will. I remember years and years and years ago when we were up at the Highlands Festival in Estes Park, one of the things that they had is jousting. So on one side is this big black Percheron horse, and sitting on top of him is this equally big, not black, biker dude kind of a guy. And he's got his armor on, and he's dressed all in black, and he's massive. On the other side was sort of a normal-sized horse with sort of a normal-sized guy on it. So they do this fake jousting where they try and hit the shield and all that kind of stuff. They drop the flag and the big black horse with a big biker dude on it starts to charge. The other horse sits down. I'm not going to do this. <laughs> and they, he did it twice. You know, they brought him around, tried to get him to go in there. And he said, nope, nope, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so anyway, the, the whole point is, it, it, with the exception of this one horse, horses are the animal that will carry you into a battle, whereas a mule or a donkey won't. So the idea then, when your king comes riding in on a donkey, he's coming in peace. And when he comes riding in on a horse, he is coming in angry if he doesn't already own the place. But a horse is a military thing. One other thing about horses, 
before the invention of the stirrup, the weapon of war with horses was a chariot. You got a horse or two or three or four or however many you wanted, and you hooked it up to a little wagon, and you could then stand in the back of the wagon and shoot arrows and throw spears and do all that kind of stuff. Really hard to do from the back of a horse without stirrups. The comment was that one of the military reasons for the Muslim conquest of the East was because they had stirrups and nobody else did. Corollary to that, or a follow-on to that, is when the European crusaders came down, they not only had stirrups and they had real stirrups for the whole foot, they also had armor. And the Muslim light cavalry was not able to break the European heavy cavalry charges. The European cavalry would just blow right through the light cavalry of the Muslims. Anyway, all that is by way of saying horses mean things. They're not just random animals that people happen to ride on. They have a specific meaning in scripture. So anyway, we got our four chariots, and as I suggested earlier, this is a bookend, chapter one, where you have a mounted patrol, which I would characterize as scouts. So they would be traveling through the world to see what was going on as scouts. Chariots, on the other hand, would be going through the world militarily to conquer. So chapter six. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. The other place, of course, where we have four horses come out is in Revelation 6, where you've got the four horsemen of the apocalypse, to use the popular term. They are respectively a white horse and then a red horse and then a black horse and then finally a pale horse. Those specifically have jobs for their riders. So the white horse is going to conquer. The red horse is going to take away peace, loose war. The Black horse is famine, and then the pale horse is plague. And uh, I have heard that that word is, I haven't looked it up, but it's one, some Bible teacher I heard said this, so I'm just passing it on with no more uh, authenticity than that, is the pale horse is actually the same word we get cholera from. Cholera means green, by the way. Back in Zechariah, the colors are in Hebrew, whereas they're in Greek in Revelation. And we got no idea what that fourth color is, because this is the only place that it's used in the Bible, where it's translated here as dappled. That word is only used here in Zechariah, so we don't have anything else to compare it with. The comment was that the dappled horse on the chariot represents a mixture of prosperity and adversity. The idea is obviously we've got tanks, which are what chariot and horses would have been, tanks, and they're coming out between two mountains of bronze. And if you like to do symbolism, a mountain is something massive and immovable. And bronze, as we've said before, represents judgment.
So the idea is you have two immovable objects representing judgment, and out of that comes these four chariots. So verse 4, Then I answered and said to the angel who talked to me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And that also shows up in Revelation where you have the four angels who represent the four winds of heaven. So if you go to Revelation 7, this is the ceiling of the 144,000. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants. Notice that it is not, do not ever harm them. Hang on a minute, we've got to get this done first, is what that says. So do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So the idea is these angels are restraining the four winds until such time as the 144,000 are sealed. And at that point, they're going to release the winds, which are going to do great damage. So back here to Zechariah, in verse 5, the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The idea is these war vehicles are going to muster in front of the Lord, Yeshua, and then they are going to be sent out. Very similar to what's going on in Revelation where these four angels are restraining the wind until they are released. So verse 6, The chariot with the black horse goes toward the north country. The white ones go after him, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses come out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, these who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Now, a couple of things. Some of you will have different translations of directions. Some of you will have three directions instead of two directions. The commentary I read said it isn't at all clear which one is right. Other than the commentary said, north and south, considering where Israel is are what makes most sense. In other words, one goes to the north, to the south, and one follows instead of going to the west. In Israel, there's nothing to the west except the sea. So the idea of following instead of going to the west makes some sense. It's a translation problem. It's a Hebrew word problem. It's not, thus saith anybody, as far as I know. But the point is, remember where we started this, the Gentile nations, especially to the north, which is where Babylon and Assyria are, 
So the nations of the north are the ones that have invaded Israel and have scattered the Israelite people and have driven them into exile. So verse 8, he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the commentary I read said that what that is saying is God has taken vengeance for the insult that was done to his people, and now that is complete, and God's spirit is at rest. He is no longer contemplating what he is going to do to those countries in the north. Now down to verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Those three guys just show up here. Nobody knows who they are or anything about them. They just plop in the middle of the prophecy. Apparently, Zechariah knows who they are because he doesn't you know, do one of these, who are these, my lord? So apparently this is somebody that he has either met or is known to him. So verse 11, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it upon the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Obviously, a crown indicates royalty or government leadership. The reason this is important is if you go back to the blessing of Jacob on his sons, what he did there is he conferred leadership to Judah and Joseph. That's confirmed by Moses in Deuteronomy when he gives his prophecy over the 12 tribes. And you have Joseph and Judah are the two political leadership tribes, if you will. There is nothing mentioned of Levi in terms of royalty or government power other than the fact that they're the high priest, which is a powerful position, don't get me wrong. God has three voices. They are the voice of the priest, the voice of the prophet, and the voice of the king. What the priest does is he explains clean and unclean, holy and common, and teaches Torah. That's his job. The king has political leadership, and the prophet is the voice of God into a specific situation. So when Israel goes astray and the priest and the king have gone astray so that the country is going into apostasy and idolatry and so forth, God will send a prophet who speaks into that situation and the intent there is to grab them by the stacking swivel and bring them back to where they're supposed to be. So the idea of a priest also being in charge of the government, that would be like, for example, a judge usurping the legislative role, as has happened a number of times in our system. According to our system, judges are not supposed to make legislation. 
They, in fact, often do by de facto. Similarly, the king or the president is not supposed to make legislation either. But with the bureaucracy and regulations we have, they wind up making de facto legislation. So the way we're set up, we have a, a legislature whose job it is to make laws. We have an executive whose job it is to execute those laws. And we have a judicial whose job is to settle disputes. That's the way it's supposed to be. What we've done, of course, is all three of those branches have overstepped their boundaries. Israel has the same three components in God's economy. So you have priests who teach Torah, uh, separate between clean and unclean, and so forth. You have the king, who's the political leader, and then you have a prophet who essentially is a judge, if you will, and comes in and says to the nation, wait a minute, you guys aren't doing this right. We have copied the same thing. And just as Israel goes astray, so are we. The point I'm making here is it's important that God has mixed a crown and put a crown on a Levite. That's a big deal. Because the original way it was set up, there weren't supposed to be crowns on Levites. And by the way, there is one case where the Levites have assumed political powers. Anybody know where that is? Ashmaneans, Maccabees. The Maccabees were a priestly rebellion, and the Hashmanean dynasty were Levites, and they became kings, if you will, in Israel. didn't last very long. And the rabbis say about that, the reason they didn't last very long is they were in the wrong role. Levites aren't supposed to be kings. Having said that, let's go back now to this idea of God putting a crown on a Levite. What that says to me is that the Messiah, the branch, if you will, is going to have both the attributes of a king and the attributes of a priest, which, of course, according to Christian theology, Yeshua does. But it's back here in Zechariah. And as I think I said when we were in Ezekiel or someplace, the reason that the Messiah has to be a priest is because one of his functions is to present a sacrifice in the tabernacle in heaven, of which the earthly one is a copy. Well, in order to present a sacrifice in a tabernacle, you need a priest. But there aren't any priests in heaven. The only guy that's in heaven is Yeshua, who is from the tribe of Judah. Wrong tribe. So we have this business in the book of Hebrews where God makes an oath and says to a member of the tribe of Judah, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is king of righteousness. He was the mayor of Salem. So king of righteousness, prince of peace is what Melchizedek was. So the point here back in Zechariah is God is deliberately mixing the executive function of government with the Levitical priestly function. And the reason for that is he's going to need it in his son in order for the sacrifice to take place in heaven as it has to. All right, got then the mixture of 
priesthood and the executive. And you also have him called the branch. Verse 12, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Well, the branch shows up in a couple of places. It shows up in Isaiah, it shows up in Jeremiah. I think it's Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, or the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then it's in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which shall be called the Lord is our righteousness. So the idea here is a couple of things. One, you remember that the tree of David has been cut down. The last king of the line of Judah was Jeconiah, and he was killed by Nebuchadnezzar when the Babylonians cleared the place. So the idea is you have a stump, if you will, that is going to put forth a shoot The life is still in the stump. Even though the tree has been cut down, it still has life. And that shoot will then grow up and become a a tree. The other thing that we've got going on with this metaphor of the branch is you'll remember the blessing on Joseph where his branches go over the wall a metaphor for fruitfulness and in this case it's a metaphor for spreading the kingdom of God so what you have in the Zechariah passage if you will is you've got a combination of Judah Levi and Joseph you've got metaphors from all three of those tribes in this one passage here in Zechariah and remember the thing that sort of sent me off on this bunny trail was the book I'm reading of the Messiah ben Joseph. And what we're seeing in Zechariah is you find mixing of symbols, if you will, that come from all three of those tribes. And of course we know that Yeshua was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He was a physical descendant on his human side from Judah. And His legal father was Joseph. So you again have the three tribes represented or met, if you will, in Yeshua. Now, the commentary I was reading says in verse 13, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on this throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. The comment was the Septuagint has a different meaning, which is the priest and the king shall be side by side. In what I just read, let me read it again. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And as I'm looking at that again critically, that could be saying the same thing that you've got two people, not just one. In other words, you don't have the two functions married in one person. 
Anyway, the commentary I read, Zerubbabel, remember, is the guy who was actually the governor who was building the temple. And one of the reasons that the crown goes on the high priest instead of on Zerubbabel is Zerubbabel is of the tribe of Judah. And so if the crown goes on him, what you are effectively doing is reestablishing the kingdom of David. And that doesn't happen. Now, the other thing it says here is the idea that this temple that's being built, and this is a commentary, I don't know that I agree with it, is the millennial temple, not the one that they are currently working on. I'm not sure I buy that, but I'll just throw that out and you can do that whatever seems good to you. The thing that I'm interested in is you have a priest and a king, either one person or together, and the two of them are at peace. The idea that you have a priest sitting on a throne is biblically a new deal. And when that happens, it shall be peaceful. And I'm suggesting that the reason it's going to be peaceful is you got one man who is both a king and a priest. So, of course, it's going to be peaceful. Do that as it seems good to you. Tanakh, Jewish Publication Society, has two people, clearly. King Jimmy has one person. So, apparently, there's some ambiguity there. So, I'm in verse 14. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jedidiah, and Han, the son of Zephaniah. As I say, the commentary I was reading says this is the millennial temple. It doesn't feel like that, the way this reads. It reads like, okay, Zerubbabel, you're not going to be the king. So we're going to put this symbolic crown on the high priest to show that you are not the Messiah. You are not going to be the king. And then we're going to take that crown and we're going to put it in the temple that you guys are building because we're not going to have a king from the tribe of Levi either. Two of you are going to be together, but he's not going to wear the crown all the time. It's going to be parked in the temple that you guys are building. I'm not entirely sure what to do with all that, but there we are. Verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. The idea there is if you believe this is the millennial temple, you remember in the millennium all the nations of the earth send their treasure to Jerusalem. And they do build the millennial temple with it. Here it could also be returnees from the diaspora. Because remember, you've got Hebrews scattered all over the Middle East at this point. And those that were taken by the Assyrians and the Babylonians were not scattered voluntarily. And indeed, a lot of them do, but most don't. Most of the folks that were exiled to Babylon by the Assyrians never do come back. In fact, Babylon becomes, I won't say a rival, but a major center of rabbinic Torah study. And you have the Babylonian Talmud and stuff like that, and so it becomes a, a major center of Judaism. It feels to me like it's the one they're building right now. 
The returnees are, in fact, in the process of rebuilding the temple. That's their job. The Masoretic text says, And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The only reason I'm mentioning it is one of the commentaries I have indicates that this is the millennial temple we're talking about, and to me it doesn't feel like it, but apparently somebody thinks it does. The comment was that with the mixture that the Hebrews had had with all the conquests and so forth, a lot of them had both Hebrew and Gentile names, and that in fact carries on today. In Orthodox communities, when a child is born, he's given a Hebrew name. That may not be the name that he goes by. He may get a Gentile name that he goes by. Let me read the first paragraph of chapter 7 because it goes along with what you're saying, and then we'll start chapter 7 again next time. So chapter 7, in the fourth year of King Darius, this, by the way, is two years later. So you have these visions that we have just finished up with that happened in the second year of Darius. And so this one is now in the fourth year of Darius, which is two years subsequent. And by the way, the idea that we're dating things according to a Persian king is also significant. And what that says is that Israel does not have its own royal dynasty in place. Because if they did, they would date things from the first year of King whoever, their own king, but they don't have a king. So these are dated with respect to the Gentile king who is over them. That also happens back in the first chapter. So in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sharezer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord, of hosts and of the prophets, shall I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years. One presumes that these are Hebrews. Their names, however, are Gentile. They are not Hebrew names. Presumably, these guys are Hebrew, and the fast of the fifth month is the month of Av. And Jews to this day fast on Tisha B'Av, which is the ninth of Av, because that's the day when the temple was destroyed twice. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and it was destroyed again by the Romans on the same day. So they're coming to inquire, do we continue to fast now that you guys are building the temple? And the only reason I'm going into that right now is because you had mentioned this business about names, and the names of these people who have come to inquire are not Hebrew names. Yet, they are clearly mourning the destruction of the temple, which indicates that they are Hebrews. So, we'll pick that up there next time and go into the various fasts and so forth. And we wind up with four fasts listed here. You have the ninth of Av, and then you have the fast in the seventh month, which is not Yom Kippur. It's the fast of Gedaliah. Gedaliah was the Babylonian governor that was left in charge of the place, and he was murdered. And so they have a fast in the month of Tishri for him, in addition to the biblical fast of Yom Kippur. And then they have a fast on the ninth of Av, and then there'll be a couple of more fasts thrown in here just for good measure as we get... 
further down the chapter. Mm-hmm.